Welcome to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and advanced physics students from Roaring Fork Valley High Schools. The students spend a week working at the center during the summer and get to talk one-on-one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Patty Fox, and I'm hosting today's program, which was recorded during the teen summer program at the Aspen Center for Physics. With me today are Quinn Ramberg and Ben Spicer, rising seniors from Aspen High School, and they will be interviewing Paul Goldbart, Dean of the College of Natural Sciences and Professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Texas at Austin. Paul earned a BA in Physics and Theoretical Physics from Cambridge University, an MS in Physics from UCLA, and a Diploma of Mathematical Physics and a PhD in Physics from Imperial College London. His research, done jointly with graduate students, postdoctoral, and faculty collaborators, is primarily on the physics of condensed matter. This field explores how large-scale features of matter, i.e. rigidity, uh, liquid crystallinity, magnetism, and superfluidity, emerge as consequences of the nature of the constituents and the interactions between them. Paul has also contributed to the fields of mesoscopic physics. Hmm, that'll take a little explanation, Paul. Quantum entanglement and chaos. Atom light crystallization in ultra-cold gases. Nano superconductivity and a little law and economics. Uh, could you possibly explain mesoscopic physics for us? <laughs> sure, I, I would love to. So uh, you're used to the world around you, things like boulders and baseballs and so forth, big stuff. And I think you know a little bit about atoms and molecules as well, as small, small stuff. And you're used to the idea that uh, the laws that seem to govern the way that big stuff operates, so Newtonian mechanics, describes how rivers flow and, and buses roll down hills and so forth. You also know that there's a a mechanics that's more refined that takes over when you go down to the world of atoms, and that's called quantum mechanics, and it's a wonderful, beautiful, mysterious subject that describes the inner workings of the world. One of the lovely discoveries of the early 1980s is that some aspects of the quantum world leak up, maybe not to uh, circuits as big as the size of your hand, but tiny circuits that are way, way bigger than uh, individual atoms or molecules. And nevertheless, you can see beautiful phenomena such as the interference uh, of electron paths um, in the so-called mesoscopic uh, regimes, meso meaning sort of in between, and so not quite the micro world and not quite the macro world, and that's the world of mesoscopic physics. How would you say working on so many topics has, like, affected your research? Do you find that they overlap often? So that's a lovely question. And uh, my colleagues who I talk about these things often will say, oh, Paul, yes, he's very broad and very shallow (laughs) because there's only so many hours in the day. But I actually must confess that I rather like dabbling in one subject after another Um, I think the truth is you kind of get 75-80% of the subject in the first couple of years, and then if you stick with it for another decade, maybe you get another 10%, and I'd rather move on. And I like the feeling of being able to interact with a wide range of scientists, and I think it also positions me relatively well in my current role as a dean, 
where I oversee something like 14 uh, different academic departments, ranging from marine sciences and neuroscience and even textiles and apparel, all the way to astrophysics. And I oversee a uh, astronomical observatory and a marine sciences laboratory, as well as university uh, faculty and so forth. And having that breadth and range enables me uh, to have meaningful conversations with a much wider range of people. Plus, I just kind of like understanding the world around me, and it's kind of fun to see that in different uh, domains. So I know one of your topics is quantum entanglement. Could you possibly give us a brief summary of what you research in that category? Sure, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> so quantum mechanics, as I said, is a, is a somewhat mysterious subject. Uh, famous physicists have said things like, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you've got rocks in your head. <laughs> so uh, I don't think anybody would say they fully understand it, although we have the rules and they've been around for nearly 100 years and they work wonderfully well and we haven't actually seen settings where they fail to work. So they're probably uh, very close to the truth, whatever truth actually means. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, there are aspects that are quite mysterious. And I think the one that's the most mysterious of all is this idea of what's called quantum entanglement. And I'll try and explain to you a little bit about what it means. Lots of folks here over the course of the summer at the Aspen Center for Physics think about quantum entanglement. They use it to as a framework for talking about the problems they're working on. Uh, so entanglement actually comes, uh, originally was introduced by the great Austrian physicist Schrodinger, who wrote down a famous equation that governs the microscopic world, Schrodinger's equation. You've probably heard of Schrodinger's cat as well. And uh, he, he thought of entanglement in the way that one sort of folds one's arms, one kind of tangles them together. And in fact, the word entanglement comes from a German word, which means a kind of folding of the arms. So what does it mean? Uh, here goes. <laughs> so let me uh, ask you to imagine a relatively simple setting. Take the solar system. So there's the sun at the center of the solar system and there are the planets orbiting around. And let's make a kind of idealization like physicists like to make. Let's forget that, that the sun is so big. Let's make it a point. Let's, let's not worry about the size of the planets. Let's make them points. And now I can say to you, well, you're a scientist. What would it take to have the maximum possible information about the solar system? And you would probably, after a little bit of prompting here and there, say, well, if I know where all the planets are and I know how fast they're moving, I know everything. Because if I then invoke Newton's equations, that should in principle tell me how the solar system will unfold for the rest of history. Now, things are a little bit more delicate and there are issues such as chaos and so forth, but let's put them to one side. Let's just think about uh, uh, the least complicated setting. So just to recap, you know where everything is, you know how fast it's moving, you couldn't know anything better. You can't, there's no point adding any more information. If I say to you, you've got the best possible information you could possibly have about the solar system, and then I said, do you have the best possible information you can have about Mars? With a little prompting, you would probably say, yeah, I know where it is, I know how fast it's moving. Now, when we look at the quantum world, something really strange happens. I can say to you, I have the best possible knowledge of the solar system. In the language of quantum mechanics, that means you own, you can write down something called a wave function that depends on where all the pieces are. Where are the planets? Where's the sun? And I now say to you, okay, I'm going to give you a wave function that describes the solar system, and I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have the best possible knowledge about Mars? 
And the interesting thing is that if the state of the solar system is an entangled state, and nearly all states are, then the answer is no. Even though you've got the best possible knowledge of the solar system, you don't have the best possible knowledge of Mars. And that's kind of disturbing. And sometimes we like to quantify uh, uh, this idea of entanglement. And, uh, and one of the things I've worked on, uh, primarily with a former student of mine, Su Che Wei, who's now a professor at uh, Stony Brook, is how entangled are systems. And uh, we put some formulae forward that describe that that have turned out to be quite fun and popular. I read that you work mainly in theoretical con condensed matter. If you were to try and explain that to somebody with little to no background in physics, how would you go about that? Wonderful question. Here's how I would go about it. Let me forget about physics, and let me ask you to imagine that you are an anatomist and a physiologist. And let's suppose I said to you, uh, uh, go and study everything you can possibly learn about, about the human body and mind. So you know the whole lot. You understand all the workings of the human body. And now I said to you, okay, be creative. What would happen if you brought lots of people together? You would be hard-pressed to come up with an idea or a notion such as democracy. So democracy is an idea, a concept that only has meaning when you bring lots and lots of people together. Uh, you don't actually have to understand everything in detail about each of the people, but it's something that just democracy is not a concept that is worth talking about when you're talking about individuals. And so it is with condensed matter physics. With condensed matter physics, I'll say to you, let's suppose that you know everything there is to know about uh, a long polymer macromolecule. And now I say to you, what happens when I bring boatloads of them together, billions and billions of them together, and you have them all interacting with one another so they kind of look like a, a nest of snakes all slithering past one another or a bowl of cooked spaghetti? And, and you would then have to come up with the idea of how do I possibly describe that system involving billions and billions of these long, flexible polymers? Uh, and you, if you were really creative, you might come up with the idea of a kind of chewing gum-like material. That's not a question or an idea that makes any sense when you're thinking about individual polymers. It's a consequence of bringing lots of them together and having them interact. And so that's the basic essence of condensed matter physics. We imagine that we know everything there is to know about the constituents. Constituents might be electrons, they might be atoms, they might be small molecules, they might be large molecules. And then we let those interact with one another and we ask ourselves what wonderful new things emerge. And the things that emerge are the things that make matter interesting and useful. So for example, um, if I give you an atom, it doesn't make very much sense to ask whether or not it's rigid. On the other hand, if you want a walking stick for going, or a walking pole for going walking in the mountains, you want to have this new phenomenon of rigidity, which is a very strange thing. It's really quite a remarkable thing. How did that emerge? How did that property arise, given the constituents and the way they interact with one another? So the whole world of condensed matter physics is about understanding how new things arise when you bring billions of agents together to interact with one another and you get marvelous new things. You get crystals and you get superconductors and magnets and you get liquid crystals and so forth and all sorts of things uh, just like that. So that is, in, in a nutshell, the essence of the field of condensed matter physics. What is the big goal of your research? Is there something that could potentially change the world? Well, uh, I won't talk about my own research specifically, 
Uh, but the folks in my field, for example, would love to understand how to make something called a room temperature superconductor. That's really a, a holy grail. Why? Well, you know very well from the light bulbs around you that when you pass an electrical current through a wire, uh, it might light up a bulb, but it also gets hot and that wastes energy. So moving electric uh, currents around typically costs you energy. One of the great and beautiful uh, discoveries of condensed matter physics in the very early part of the 20th century was the phenomenon of superconductivity. Take all sorts of uh, metals uh, and alloys, not all of them by any means, but quite a substantial number. You cool them down, and, and a miraculous thing happens. Suddenly, you can pass current through them without uh, losing energy. Uh, and so uh, that's wonderful for shipping electricity around, uh, electrical currents around. Uh, and if we could do that uh, at room temperature, that would uh, save an awful lot of, um, of um, energy, and energy costs money. Uh, and so we would love to be able to make room temperature superconductors. And in fact, we're getting close uh, in the uh, last century, for the most part of the last century, people figured it was a hopeless goal, and then just out of nowhere came an extraordinary discovery in late 1986, which set the physics world on fire, so much so that people refer to the first big conference after this discovery as Woodstock, because uh, <laughs> the physicists got together and just uh, looked at the data and thought about theories, and this has set off uh, an enormous amount of activity over the past decades of, in, in which people have not only wrestled with the idea of superconductivity, but all sorts of related ideas that have emerged from that central challenge. And so uh, that's, that's a great goal. We would love to have a room temperature superconductor, and, and we will get one one day. So you work in a lot of different fields. Do you have a favorite field to work in? I do. I have a favorite field which is um, almost untouched by the whole world of theoretical physics. <laughs> and I like it that way. And, and so it's actually very much part of the story that we've been talking about. We've been talking about emergent phenomena, how it is when you bring billions of entities together, you get new things. You get liquid crystals. I mean, just imagine if you had been the first person to realize that when you take molecules that look more like baseball bats than soccer balls and you pack them together, new phases of matter occur, you could have then had this billion dollar business that provides you with TV screens and computer monitors and all that stuff. Uh, and so, uh, so this world of condensed matter physics is one that I like very much. And the part that I have spent quite a lot of time on and still find it very exciting is the question of, of rubber. What is rubber and how does it get the properties that it does? It's, of course, it's a solid. Uh, well, what does that actually mean? It's worth thinking about for a little while, but solids are things that have the property that if you try and change their shape without changing their volume, they fight back. And one way to think about that is to imagine a plastic shopping bag full of liquid water, not frozen water, not ice. It's very hard to squeeze but it's very easy to deform without squeezing. Uh, on the other hand, if you cooled that, uh, that water in the bag down and it froze, not only would it be really hard to compress, in fact, it would be more or less as hard to compress as it was before you froze it, but now it's also comparably hard to change the shape without changing the volume, and that's the phenomenon of rigidity. So we kind of understand where rigidity comes from if you give me a piece of diamond, for example, or a crystal of copper. But rubber is something completely different. It's this melt of um, 
long flexible molecules that kind of look like cooked spaghetti. They're very bendy and they entangle with one another. That in itself is not really the rubbery materials that you know of. That's kind of more like chewing gum. It's kind of sticky. On the other hand, and this was discovered in 1838 and then again in 1839 in a purely serendipitous experiments by Hayward and Goodyear, if you just throw in a little bit of sulfur and bake, what happens is the sulfur goes in and puts a little bit of glue between just very occasional points on those slithering long spaghetti-like molecules. Hardly any glue at all, just a few little points of glue per molecule. And you build up this giant, random, three-dimensional kind of tennis net, except it's random, and something happens. You move from having a liquid to a solid in the sense that you now have a material that if you change its shape without changing its volume, it fights back forever. Uh, that's our definition of a solid. And you, it's actually hard to imagine a world without rubbery materials. And in fact, Goodyear himself wrote a book in something like 1854, I don't quite remember, but less than 20 years after, after the discovery of this process called vulcanization, how you use fire to create this new phase of matter, this solid-like uh, rubbery material. And he had, I don't remember exactly, somewhere between three and 400 pages of good faith, marketable applications of what he discovered, including things like flexible tubing for use in medicine and very importantly in winemaking as well. It's hard to imagine a world without flexible tubing. And my favorite, which are waders for use by Baptist ministers so that they could baptize not only in the summer but also in the winter wearing these rubbery flexible kind of waders that you see out in the streams here in Colorado when you see people fishing. But, but although I'm giving some lighthearted examples, it's pretty hard to imagine a world without rubbery materials. And in fact, it's really the first materials revolution that has occurred during the period of recorded history. We've had the Iron Age and we've had the Bronze Age and so forth, but they were before recorded history. Now we've seen a transformation, but during a period where people write things down and actually record historical events. And so it's quite a remarkable, remarkable revolution. And I sometimes tease my friends in high temperature superconductivity and I say, hmm, where are those three or 400 pages of commercializable applications? <laughs> after all, you're more than 20 years after the discovery. Uh, but the truth is uh, uh, I've had a, a lot of fun thinking about rubbery materials and here's why. I would say that given the complexity of the system, you have these long slithery kind of snake-like molecules, you have this random glue just going in at various points in an uncontrolled way. Nevertheless, you get a transformation from a gummy liquid to something that's practical and useful, like for making car tires or the soles of shoes and so much more. And the question is, how do you make a theory of that? And I think it's actually a, a duty of all scientists to work on the hardest problems that they're capable of. It's not much use to work on problems that are too hard for you, but you don't want to waste your time on things that are too easy for you. And for me, this problem just lies exactly at that boundary uh, on the edge of doability for me. And we've, had, we've been fortunate to make a little bit of progress here and there. And I have to say, I feel a sense of satisfaction feeling like I'm one of a handful of people who've managed to figure out wh what it means for a piece of rubber to be a solid. And what is this progress that you've made? Ah, <laughs> very good. Well, uh, so, so that let me broaden your question a little bit and say, what does progress mean in the world of condensed matter physics? So in your physics classes, 
you study problems like cylinders rolling down inclined planes and those kind of problems. And and they're very reductionist. You know, you have some picture of what's going on and you write down some equations and you solve them. That's fine if there's just where is the cylinder rolling down the plane. It's just fine for things that are a little bit more complicated. But as soon as you get to a small handful of particles, the equations just become too hard, hard to solve. And that's certainly true when you take a bucket of rubber with something like 10 with 23 zeros after it, molecules in there. Maybe not quite so many, but an enormous number of molecules. All the paper in the world wouldn't be enough to write down the equations that describe the motion of those molecules. So the beauty of condensed matter physics is that it's part art and part science, and somehow you have to tease out of this complexity some prescription or some characterization of what these systems actually do and how they behave. So for me, the first question is, what does it even mean to be a solid? And the second is, if you then have a picture in your mind of what it means to be a solid, can you actually calculate how solid it is, how rigid it is? Is it more rigid than something or less rigid than something else? And, uh, and then uh, thirdly, can you uh, understand how that rigidity changes if you change the temperature, for example, or if you change the amount of glue that you've put in, and so on and so forth? And we use this blend of, I would say, art and science, art meaning the use of symmetry and the ideas of symmetry, along with mathematics, to tease out some of the, uh, some of the essential properties. And so that's what we've tried to do, and there are plenty more that we haven't got our heads around yet. <laughs> In the coming years, what fields would you like to see like new physicists going into, our generation of physicists, I guess? Yeah, what a great question. Well, I think uh, I'll, I'll give two examples. Uh, I think uh, the quest to understand the brain is about the most exciting question out there. And uh, I think uh, as an outsider, although I do have the pleasure of overseeing a wonderful department of neuroscience at the University of Texas, I will say that uh, the behavior of the brain and the kind of things that the brain accomplishes seem to me to have at least some relationship with condensed matter physics in the sense that we could imagine understanding neurons. If I gave you an one or two or three neurons and you completely characterized them, would you then be able to deduce that when you put billions of neurons together as you do in a brain, then out would come things like jealousy or sadness, or joy, or the ability to control our bodies, and so forth. And so for me, that at least uh, smacks of, of uh, emergent collective phenomena in the same way that in really the much simpler world of atoms and molecules rather than neurons, over the past 100, year, 100 years or so, we've really got our minds around the behavior of matter. So I think understanding the brain is a wonderful quest. Uh, I would say understanding biodiversity, tremendously important quest. And then the last one is one that I just can't imagine anybody not being electrified by, and that's the search for life elsewhere in the cosmos. I mean, who could not want to understand whether or not we have partners out here? And what I love is that this subject of astrobiology has gone from being something that you would be laughed at for mentioning to something that's really quite central. And you see teams now of microbiologists and chemists and physicists and astronomers all coming together around this question of astrobiology uh, and the idea that you can just detect planets orbiting other suns elsewhere in the cosmos is already remarkable but now we're moving to a position where we can actually analyze 
the impacts of light skimming through the atmospheres of those planets. And maybe by analyzing that light, we might get a hint of whether or not there are biological molecules sitting out there in the cosmos, presumably made by creatures that are or are not something like us. And I think that's just incredibly thrilling. What attracts you to physics and what originally attracted you? Ah, okay, so this is a wonderful question and I will tell you. So from a very early age, I wanted to be a theoretical physicist, probably about 12 or 13. Uh, that uh, dislodged my wish to be an architect, uh, which kind of went away because I wasn't very good at drawing freehand, although apparently that doesn't matter. Um, but I uh, found myself drawn to theoretical physics for the following reason. I liked science, I liked understanding the world around me, but I'm fundamentally lazy, and I was seeking a subject <laughs> where the further you went, the less you had to know. And I didn't really know that that's what theoretical physics was, but I, I think I was smart enough to know that something had to carry that role in science. Um, I wasn't attracted to things like geology, because it seemed to me in geology, you would learn about one rock, and then if you wanted to be a better geologist, you had to learn about another rock. Now, of course, uh, it's much richer and much more beautiful than that. So I, I'm only gently poking fun. But I, uh, but I certainly felt that way about things like geography and history and other academic subjects, which I liked and enjoyed. But uh, knowing a great deal about Europe really didn't allow me to then understand very much about the United States geography. And I felt that there had to be something out there that the further you went, the more things came together. And I had a wonderful chemistry teacher, and so I was derailed a little bit for a short while by chemistry, and that's the power of a great teacher. But that, uh, that teacher enabled me to understand that by going further in a subject, you somehow could get uh, uh, simpler rules that encompassed more. Uh, and then eventually uh, I found my way to theoretical physics where that is really played out par excellence. And that's what really attracts me to the subject. We're going to have to say goodbye to Paul Goldbart, Dean of the College of Natural Sciences at the University of Texas in Austin, and Quinn Ramberg and Ben Spicer from Aspen High School. That was a wonderful introduction to condensed matter. Thank you so much, Paul. And both of you asked brilliant questions. Thank you.